So forgive me for not giving you a break between the talks for talking during the break. <laughs> That's a, a, a demerit for me. So when it, we've talked quite a bit about bhakti and uh, underlying philosophy, the theology, the principal book of our particular bhakti tradition, it was the heart of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, how to think about it, Bhagavatam, it's, it's narratives, narrative upon narrative upon narrative, it's stories, it's science, it's history, it's geography, it's descriptions of the avatars and so forth, and that's where we, of course, come to where we, we were left off in the morning's talk, the actual discussion of the descent avatar, avatara. Ava means like, uh, means crossing from Tara, crossing from up to down. So it's the Avutara, or the, people call it the incarnation of God. It's an English way of translating Avatar that's very uh, inaccurate or incomplete, um, because the word incarnate means to be in prison. <laughs> means, uh, I don't mean incarceration, I mean incarnate, it means in a body, to be within a body, incarnate. And the descent of the Godhead within the world of our experience, within the frame of our reference, is quite a different affair. It's not God coming in, uh, the invisible intangible spirit, something like that, all-pervading spirit, taking up a, a form like sky coming within an earthen pot, something like that. It's not like that. Not like that at all. Our situation is, of course, that we are within a body. We are a soul and we're in a body. It means what? We're not really in it. We're, we've identified with matter and with a particular transformation of the material elements. We've identified with that as ourselves. But anyway, we are different from matter. We're, we're consciousness. Matter is unconscious. So we're the experience of matter is experienced. And as I said before, if matter were to matter, independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? So consciousness is life. It's all important. But this life that we're constituted of, the unit of life, a unit of will, if you will, is mixed up with matter. We don't really get mixed up with matter any more than oil mixes with water. You know, when we have the oil spills, then it's a problem, but it can be rectified to some extent because the oil can be taken off the water. It doesn't mix with it. So we don't mix with matter our constitution doesn't change by being in touch with matter. It's really to be in touch with matter is an identification, uh, attachment. So there's kind of a, a cloud, if you will, of our consciousness. We then perceive ourselves to be a particular manifestation of, of matter. So in spiritual life, then, part of the idea is to extricate oneself from this kind of uh, entanglement 
to come out from underneath the oppressive view that my existence is dependent upon the particular body that I have and the oppressive idea that, that a meaningful life amounts to meeting the needs of the body, satisfying it, and, and so forth. It's very limited and oppressive type of existence that we're constantly seeking to go, go beyond. Experience that we sense that there's more to life than this. So, while this is fundamental to all ego-effacing, authentic spiritual paths, those that acknowledge consciousness to be a permanent thing, that is, there are those that don't. But uh, while this is essential to that, or is basic, fundamental to that, we shouldn't have the misconception that the absolute Godhead's descent within the world, within our frame of reference, the reference of our mind and senses and intellect and so forth, amounts to a big soul, if you will, a big unit of will, the reservoir of will, coming in a body, maybe a big one or maybe a small one, but similar in the way that we do. The reason that this is not um, tenable, credible, is because from our own experience we can understand that our embodiment, if you will, is a bewilderment. That's why we're, we're talking about it and trying to get out of it. So our self, a small soul or unit of will, being in this situation is, well, it amounts to ignorance. And so the big soul is not subject to the same problems that a small soul is, something like that. I'm trying to present it very simply. A small soul can get lost in the vastness of matter, but the big soul, who is the source of matter itself, doesn't suffer from the same potential of confusion. So to say that God is incarnate is a little, really quite erroneous, but the limitations of language are there. So avatar means something really different. It doesn't mean that the one spirit becomes embodied for some time to teach us and, and somehow doesn't become influenced by the ignorance. So no, it's not like that. It's like within the realm of the possibility of uh, that plane that has no uh, impossibility to manifest fully within the material world, within the frame of our experience, for the purpose of taking us out. So this descent is not... It has no connection with matter whatsoever. We have a connection by identification, as I mentioned, but this connection with, of Bhagavan, his coming to the world, and even that connection is absent, no identification. So in the world, ostensibly, but not of it at all, not touched by it. Like the example is given of the lotus that appears on the lake. It grows up from the mud underneath the lake and sits on top of the water. It's not in the water, and it's not in the mud. It's beautiful, resting on top. So this avatar crossing from up to down, and for the purpose of enabling us to ford the ocean, the river of separation between us and Bhagavan, the ignorance, to go to the other side, by example, by teaching, and so on and so forth. So the problem being, of course, when, when this happens, when powerful manifestation of divinity makes descent, 
so to speak, and appears in a, within our frame of reference, then we tend to evaluate that from our frame of reference. And then we do ourselves out of, to some extent, taking advantage of the purpose for which that descent is, uh, is all about to take us beyond our frame of reference, which is so limited. So it's important to make this point strongly that our frame of reference is very, very small and what's possible in our frame of reference hardly uh, represents all possibilities. Now, we can all agree with that. That's pretty simple and easy, easy to agree with, but we don't always conduct ourselves like that. And this is a good example. These stories about the descent of God, powerful historical events of sorts, of times at which a powerful manifestation of divinity made appearance within our frame of reference. Worth noting down, that type of, of the history. So we should hear about this from a good source, that we may be helped from misconstruing that. It is difficult to do. We act from our frame of reference. So we've been kind of talking about this in different ways for throughout the day here. And so now we come to the the story itself. It's not just a story, it's a wonderful event and full of meaning on so many different levels. And as I ended with the early morning, earlier talk in the morning, we were where? We were in Vaikuntha. Vaikuntha means without kunta, without any anxiety, any restriction, something like that. Vaikuntha. Not like our present existence. It's restricted in so many ways. We, as human beings, curiously enough, have an interest that no other species of life that I know of has. What is our interest? Birds have interest in flying in the sky for different reasons. Fish have interest in swimming in the depths of the oceans and rivers for their reasons, basically for their sustenance, to maintain their life, to, to succeed in the struggle. And we are humans. And we have an interest in flying in the sky like birds. We have an interest in plumbing the depths of the ocean like fish. Birds aren't interested in doing what we do, going about sustaining themselves. They're not looking for that kind of variety of experience. And animals and so forth, they're content with their situation, so to speak. So why is it that we, as humans, have this interest to experience the world in the ways, to some extent, that other species we see are. Birds are flying, what it must be like to be up there, we think, and look down, and we could go faster and travel farther, and so forth. So this interest that arises in human consciousness is very interesting, telling, if we think about it. What it tells us, really, is that we have evolved, so to speak, to a point in terms of the blossoming of what we are, a unit of consciousness as opposed to just dead matter, a living thing. We have blossomed to the point where we have a form, a corresponding form, a human form, that gives us immense amount of freedom, freedom to think, the opportunity to think, to be cognizant of the fact that we exist. It's questionable to the extent to which a tree is cognizant of the fact that it exists. It doesn't have, therefore, an existential crisis. It just does its thing. It grows and gets old and it dies. We are, you know, 
little bit into your teens or so, you get an existential crisis. At least, that's usually about the first time. Who am I? Why am I? And um, what this is about, really, is, is the blossoming of, of what we are, a unit of consciousness. And the human body is, is facilitating that. This is a product of karma, a long time to arrive at this position. Certain freedoms are there, freedom to think, freedom to pursue things that, as I say, even other species do somewhat, make an attempt at it, and so forth. So the reason this is happening is because the fact of the matter is that as a unit of consciousness, our potentials far exceeds anything within material existence, a refined, a confined world of ruled by mind and senses. That's our actual position. There's no death for the self, not withered by wind, not drowned in the water, cannot be hurt by nainam chindanti shastrani, nainam dahati pavaka, not hurt by weapons, indestructible, immutable, eternal, and so forth. These uh, terms are given in the Gita, for example, about the self. So again, our present orientation in relation to matter finds us confined, but in human life, this sense of what we are, what our potential is, is arising. So these various interests to pursue all possibilities. So human life is a great, uh, great, great time. We're living at a great time. It's called human life. This is the time that we're living in at the moment. Now, how to take advantage of that? Well. Every species of life has seems to, there seems to be a system set up by nature to meet the basic needs. That's why I say birds aren't thinking maybe I should do it like an animal, or like a fish, or maybe like a human. They don't have that. Or animals versus what? Otherwise, don't think of maybe I should try it like a bird or eat what the birds do. Maybe that'd be better for me. Or eat what the fish eat. Or this kind of thing's not going on. It's going on in in our group, the human group, and. While the answers to these kind of how-to questions are, seem to be built into nature, into the species, bird knows how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, when to mate, when not to mate. It's all built in. Same with the animal, fish, and so forth. For humans, it's a big question. These are all big, big issues. We are a more complex form of life, but the simpler questions that are answered in less complex form of life become harder for us to answer. So why is this? The reason for this is that the real question that bears down on human society is not being given enough attention. And what is that question? Why? Why do I exist? That existential question. This should be paid attention. This comes, this is in human life. And it should be given all attention. But rather we tend to give all our attention to, in a glorified way, whatever the birds and bees are doing. Maybe not so glorious. We think it is. It's an improvement on mating and eating and defending and and so forth. But then the question comes, well, where's the answer to all? Why isn't there an answer for this? There is. This is the answer. The answer is there's an answer. And the answer is that, that from up to down it comes. Human life is a chance to begin to be all that you can be, all that you are. And transcend the limitations of the oppressive demands of the senses and the mind that are dragging us here and there and embarrassing us often. 
to do things that, even with our intelligence we know, is not in our own interest. We do that. Everyone has the experience at some point in doing something that they know with their intelligence, by the force of their mind and senses, they know is not good for them. Everyone has this experience. And as I said before, it might be more accurate to say few people have any other experience of listening to that quiet voice of the intellect. And, and so we said to be rational animals. If we don't use that, then we're nothing but a two-legged animal, a dangerous beast for that matter, more so than beasts in the forest. So we should, as humans, we should try to become gentle and grateful and be open to that crossing from up to down that comes to us through scripture, through saints, and in the big way, Bhagavan himself coming, as I say, within our frame of reference to take us out. So this story about Nashinga, it begins in this other side, Vaikuntha, part of Vyom, the unrestricted land where you can do anything. There's nothing impossible, where it's all freedom. The sense of how free life should be, that we're always pursuing, is found there. So from there, some information is coming, how to arrive at that. And it's, it's, and it's directed only to human society. Of course, wonderfully enough, if human society takes it up, other species are benefited laterally thereby. So we have a big responsibility as humans. And this now, for one reason, now there's a few of us here, this kind of information, however interesting you find it, enough to come here, to be given careful consideration. We live at an auspicious time, human life, and we humans here are living at a more auspicious time than human life. We're living a human life in the context of sadhu sangha. We're satsangha, an association where arriving at comprehensive, conclusive truth is the objective. That's what the preoccupation is. So it's very special. Much can come from the combination of these two things. All problems can be solved. And the full sense of happiness and freedom that life is ultimately about can be realized. So, the story begins in Bhakunta. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, by going to the root of this story, what's behind it all, we, we get some kind of glimpse of how everything can be harmonized, how everything can be brought together, all causes can be linked together to a final cause. We want the world to have meaning. This is the way to get at it. Of course, in another sense, as I said before, the world doesn't have any meaning, because what is it about? As we were talking earlier, it's about love, and love transcends reason, and so forth. So here is Bhagwan, the Godhead, and what is he existing for? Just for joy. We're part of that. The one becomes many for the sake of joy, for no reason. Just for joy, just for love. And so he's tasting, then, in relation with those who are interested in the same cooperating, many wonderful, uh, loving sentiments. In fact, his existence is kind of fueled by that in a way. People ask, what's the source of God? If God's the source of everything, I read it in a book not long ago, I was at a bookstore for something else and picked up a book and it was interviews with the Dalai Lama. And somebody asked him, if God is the source 
of everything, then what's the source of God? He said, well, that's why we're Buddhists. We don't believe in God. <laughs> that was his answer. So it wasn't a, that was the way he got it. It wasn't a problem for him. But my answer was completely different when I read it. I said, oh, that's, I know the answer. That was the source of God. So, what is it? It means this. This is Achinta Beda Bed, the philosophy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. That God is one. Reality is one. Non-dual. One. There's only one, in one sense, existing. God. But the very nature of this entity is such that, that it is possessed of shakti. Being exists is, uh, what do they call that? Of course being exists. Being, to say being exists. Not oxymoron, no. There's a name for it. Hmm? Truism? It's something, yeah, it's, it's kind of circular. Of course being exists, that's it. But what it's saying in Gaudi Rashi, that being exists, means that, that, that there is being. The idea of it is that being and existing is kind of the expression of being. Being expressing itself. Just like we be. We do. <laughs> but just to be means to express oneself. And that takes energy. It takes power. And we are our power in a sense. How, like... What is our power? Uh, like, I'm a writer, so an author. That's one, one thing I am. So people say, I know Swami, he writes books. So that's his power, right? His shakti, his energy, he's known. How he bees, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so our own self, we, we, we're all individuals, but we all have, we exist, and we have power to express ourselves, to make ourselves known, to be. So in Sanskrit terminology, this is shakti, this power. And then there's the source of the shakti, would be the shakti man. So the, the source of the shakti and the shakti. And the two here are one, but they're different. Fire has heat and fire has light. You can talk about light, you can talk about heat, as if it's different from fire. But you can't have fire without heat, light. So the shakti, the power of a person or a thing is one with the thing and, and different from the thing at the same time. It has no separate existence. It's dependent. Our power is dependent upon us. It has no separate existence. So it's not another thing. But it's, it's us in an expressive kind of way. The power of us expressing it itself. So reality is a person, ultimately. This is the idea. A person. And why not? And expressing itself. And the expression is, is, is love, joy, expressing. So, Narayan, one of the names for God, residing in Vaikuntha, he had a desire, as I mentioned earlier, to experience Virarasa, to taste Virarasa, the rasa of chivalry and uh, fighting. It's like sometimes you want to wrestle with your friend or something like that. So, this kind of desire. But you can't do that with just anybody and taste mirarasa in bhakti. Because bhakti requires that it's rendered on favorable terms. So if someone just wants to argue with and go against God, 
God's not going to taste beer or rasa with, with that person. But if someone who's favorable and loves God, wrestles with God, then you can get some uh, rasa from that. And this is the idea. So he had desire for beer or rasa. It means not that he's incomplete or unfulfilled or God or something like that. The absolute, this person, this being, is incomplete. By the way, we speak in a, speaking in kind of a, it may sound patriarchal, he, the male, the, the God, but the, the shakti that I'm talking about is the feminine, is the power, after all. The power behind men is women, really. So that's what you know, makes them feel whole and, uh, uh, and so forth. It gives them the energy to stand up and say something and feel that they're, you know, whatever, men. <laughs> so largely this is this is the case so the shakti is not a lesser aspect of the divinity actually we'll see if we go on if we get that far it's the greater aspect and this is part of the emphasis of Gaudiya Vaishnavism but pointing here that God is not some kind of incomplete this person that being is is not incomplete and now has a need I've got to fight but this is just to express his fullness in different ways in relationship with his devotees. Just like we want to experience love and you want to taste different aspects of love while you're in love and your life is complete and you want to express it this way or that way and so forth. So, like this. So he desires to taste Vira Rasa. In order to taste that Vira Rasa, he has to do that with a devotee. At the same time, in Vaikuntha, this particular manifestation of the spiritual realm, this is it means there's other ones. There's more to it. It's more complicated. But in this particular realm of Narayan, there's not a lot of fighting going on there. It's a pretty peaceful place. And if we go to Krishna Lok, then you'll find some of that. Krishna wrestling with his friends and so forth. Who's going to wrestle with Narayan? In this realm, he's God. And the, that particular realm, the sentiment that's predominant there is love in reverence and awe great respect and so forth. So the person that you love with respectful love, what do they call it in Greek? Agape? Yeah. As opposed to arrows. Respectful love, God, love of God. Um, like this, you're not about to fight with that person, wrestle with that person. But then, fighting is part of love, isn't it? As I said earlier, war is part of love. Big part of it, actually. And in the context of love, it, it's quite charming when lovers are at war with one another. It's, it brings out things that, that they didn't know were there, sentiments for themselves and, and so forth. So this realm of love is deep within the Parapyam. This is a this is Golok and Brajlok. That is Krishna. Therefore Krishna is not sitting on a big throne. He's not worshipped with awe and reverence in the Braj, but it's, there's intimacy there. And this kind of is, you find that his devotee is wrestling with him. But you won't find much of that in in Bhakuntha Narayana, we wanted to taste this virarasa. So, he'd have to go to the material world to do that, but one of his devotees would have to go too. This is the uh, this is behind the whole thing. So, many things will happen as a result of this. Many wonderful things will happen. But this is the cause. So, the point being here, in one sense, that that the will of God, the love expression of God is behind everything. And we can say that. Sometimes it's said that not a, will, not a blade of grass moves without the will of, 
God. But to trace all that out and, and how misery is the will of God. Mm-hmm. Then you think, what kind of God is it that could have this misery? And you say, God's behind everything. And so to really get behind all, get to the, the core of this, the root of this, and make sense out of misery and suffering in life and so on, this is where you have to go. You have to go all the way back to this. God's desire for to express himself in relation to his devotees in rasa is behind everything, the whole material existence. I'm not going to explain everything, why everything happens <laughs> tonight, but, but this is, this is the, what's, what's behind it all. This is the origin, the origin of the whole world. Speak of everything that goes on it. The origin, lokavattulilakaivalyam. One wanted to become many, manifest the world. So this is the basic, out of love, out of joy, the impetus behind it. So it's actually permeated with joy and with love, but we're just not looking at it from the right angle of vision. So this whole leela, like all of the leelas, and all the implications, this is the origin of that. Narayan wanted to taste virarasa. And so he told his uh, gatekeepers, there are like seven gates, so to speak, to this uh, Baikunta gates. They're likened to the stages in bhakti. Adoshadha, sadhusanga, anartanibhiti, nishta, ruchi, asakti. That's seven. When you get to this stage, asakti. Asakti means attachment. This is now a stage in which one is attached to Bhagwan, which means complete detachment from material existence. Renunciation, so vital to mukti, to liberation, was accomplished automatically. In other words, the attachment for material existence that's problematic, the cause of suffering, was overcome by taking the same tendency of attachment and focusing it properly on the center. And in the course of the progress, one comes to the point of asakti, when this actually one becomes, is attached to Bhagwan. It's a high stage. This is just the stage before entering in the world of emotions. So there's a couple gatekeepers out there. See, not just anybody gets in there is the idea. You've got to go through these stages. Love for Bhagavan comes gradually. We won't talk about all the other stages, but beneath that, but uh, some devotion is required, obviously. So he told his gatekeepers, look, I'm going to take a little rest, so I don't want to be disturbed. So Narayan says, oh yes, whatever Narayan, oh, whatever. Chamber doors are shut and so forth, no one can come in. It means taking rest. So there are some people that are personal attendants of Narayan. Some people just live in Vaikuntha, like Americans live in America. They think, we live in such a great country. Or we live in such a bad country. Uh, we have such a good president, or such a bad president. But in Baikunda, it's a good president. So we live here. Oh, it's the rain, uh, the, the rain of the king is absolutely perfect. Every, no, everyone's nourished. Everyone's benefited. Not everyone sees Narayan all the time. Some see, live there and see him in meditation only. Some are personal attendants. The different types of devotional mukti in Baikunda that offers different degrees of proximity to Narayan. So these gatekeepers are pretty close on, on in, and. Uh, they were given a personal instruction, don't let anybody in, I'm going to take some rest. You know, Vishnu is good at resting. He does a lot of sleeping, mostly in those manifestations of himself that are in relation to people who worship him, but 
don't have a lot of love for him. He pretty much sleeps. He's and, bored. Yeah. <laughs> he takes some food and goes to sleep. Close the curtain. Okay. Go to sleep. Up to Brahmalok, planet of Brahma. There he is, residing there, Yogya. He's called the personification of yoga. They offer these big yogas, oh, mom, food, fire. Then curtains close, he goes to sleep. It's really not, it's not really, their interest is not there deep in him, what he's about, what you're about. Often our orientation towards God is what I'm about and what God can do for me, not what I can do for God. We should apply this Kennedyism. I don't think he wrote the speech, but think not. What you can do for what your country if you can do can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So think not what the God can do for you, but what you can do for God. But anything, what does God need? <laughs> he doesn't need anything. But no, he does in one sense. He's living for love. This is what his being is about. So he thrives on that. So source of God is love. Love of God is, is non different from God. When the heart of the devotee is filled with a particular kind of love, Bhagavan appears. Corresponding with that love. So which comes first, the seed or the tree? The chicken or the egg? Which comes first, God or love of God? Love of God and God. Love of God and God is one and the same. We say in our tradition, we're not interested in attaining God. What are we interested in? Attaining love of God. And what do you attain in love of God? You attain God in love of God. Otherwise not. We're not interested in seeing God, in serving God. And in serving, what happens? Then you see. He says, see me. You want to serve me that bad? See me. I'm everywhere. In everything. And I'm before you at the same time. So love of God and God are one. And different. There's the Shakti and the Shaktiman interaction. Love of God and God. The devotee has a particular kind of love and a particular form of God that manifests accordingly. Radha has a particular kind of love. Nothing beyond this has ever been talked about. That kind of love in the sacred texts. That kind of love. Krishna, testing her love once, tried to hide himself. Krishna is two-handed in Braj, flute playing, the cowherd. He tried to manifest forearms of Narayan, which Narayan is one of his avatars, so that's within him. He tried to show those forearms. He couldn't. Her love checked him from being able to do that. In other words, he is her love, Radha's love. He corresponds with that kind of love. So, I had a different answer, as I say, for the Dalai Lama's question, the question of the Dalai Lama. Well, what's the source of God? Well, he's above. We don't believe it. That's why we don't believe in God. That doesn't make any sense. This is basic answer. No, we say there's a source of God. What is the source of Krishna? Radha. What is the source of Radha? Krishna. <laughs> Checkmate, something like that. <laughs> That's the idea. Love of God will cause God to appear in your life. That's a fact. You manifest there. So you're the cause. That God will. When it comes to your own personal life, that's where it really matters, right? So, he appeared in my life like this. Love was the, was the cause. This is a very interesting uh, theological kind of point. So, so Narayan was, decided to take some rest. He didn't want to be bothered. As I said, he takes a lot of rests. But, of course, in, in Vrindavan, in Golok, he's never resting. <laughs> now, this is the difference. Krishna, 
It is never resting. And his Leela, when he goes to sleep at night, he's tucked under the covers. This is a young lad, you know, young cowherd. He's tucked under the covers, tight, kissed goodnight. Mother Yashoda sings a song to him, puts him to rest. And he closes his eyes, but he's not asleep. And his mind is not restful, but reeling. Now the sun has set. Now it's dark. Now there's a chance I can meet with Radha. Because <laughs> in the context of the Leela, he can't meet with her openly in the day. He's just a young boy. He's not married. She's betrothed to another. So the setting of the sun, that's the beginning of his day. What does the Gita say? Yanisham sabhabhutanam tasyam jagati samyami. It is said, what is night for ordinary person is like the day for the introspective sage. And what is day for the introspective sage is like night for the ordinary person. The common meaning is, well, what gives life to people in the material world, acquisition and so forth, this is like dark night for an introspective person who knows the difference between body and soul. Material acquisition is, is, is not beautifying the soul, just encumbering the soul. So this is the general meaning. Of course, take it to the higher meaning in the context of the Leela, then we say like this, Yanisham Sarvabhutanam. So many meanings, levels of meanings in these scriptural statements. In the Braj Leela, it means this, that oh, what is night for everybody else is daytime for Krishna and the gopis. This is their chance to meet hmm? secretly. Yeah. So, sun setting, he's tucked asleep, and then he sneaks out in the night for rasa. For rasa and rasa. Rasa in the context of rasa, in the context of dancing, under the moonlight, something like that. So, he doesn't sleep. Now, the implication of this is what? Why is Narayan sleeping so much? Because people aren't interested in him. So many devotees, they're not that interested. They're worshipping for different reasons. Of course, in Vaikuntha, they're pretty interested, quite interested, and they're devoted and so forth, but they're not like prying. Their interest isn't prying and overbearing and drawing out from him. Is there like, why do you want to go to sleep? Orion's garage, go sleep, sleep. Oh, go to sleep, get. You want to get up, get up. Yes, you have to get up. I'm real respectful. But they wouldn't think, well, why do you want to go to sleep? They don't ask those kind of questions. But from Krishna, you're going to ask those questions. In other words, the love of Krishna, this is the highest pitch of love. Bhagavan takes this form, Krishna, to correspond with such intense love that prize, it wants to go so deep into what, so it's such intense and keen interest in God. It wants to know everything about him. All the secrets. Why? Not just to find out what the secrets of God are so that you can know and have a big head, but because then I can serve you better. If I know everything you're about, everything, that, every nuance of how your heart beats, your pulse, and, the, this, and the, those who live with it like that, the Subaldi can see his, his pulse is beating. He's looking in this way. He, want, he knows what he wants. He's pining for Radha's association with Subaldi there to assist him in every way. And, Make an, come up with an excuse to take him from the larger group of cowherds and go and meet with rendezvous with, with Radha and so forth. So this Braj Leela means, this is the implication, like you said earlier, what does it mean to draw something from it? This is it. Krishna doesn't sleep. This is what it means. You understand? He's always awake. You can just speak a story. Yeah, he stays up. And, or you can draw some meaning from that. 
And then how do you apply that in sadhana? You think, oh, yes. You're applying it in terms of pursuing a sadhya. Well, okay, where am I? I'm going to practice spiritual life. I know that. I want to, do, I want to be, practice spiritual life. So there'll be a particular practice and then there'll be a, something that's attained by that practice. So I'm going to look for a sadhya and I'm going to look as high as I can. How high does it go? Like when I was a young man, 20 years old, I used to sit in Santa Cruz Mountains here in California and I'd think, what am I going to do with myself here? Where will I go? What will I do? And I would think, oh, let's think of that. And then I'd think, play that as far as it would take me. And I'd think, well, that's, that doesn't be a good doctor, a lawyer, a, you know, Indian chief or whatever it is. You know, <laughs> think of, play out all those things. And nothing was, was satisfactory. I could see the end of it all. It all. There's a certain kind of intellect. We call it sattvic intellect. And it's that kind of intellect that cannot tolerate the idea, it feels uncomfortable with the idea of living in a plane that doesn't endure, where your pursuits come to an end. Even though everybody knows that we live in such a plane to some extent, they can tolerate it. <laughs> mm-hmm. They can live with it. They can ignore it or try to ignore it. But a person in whom that fact of life is bearing down very strongly can't feel comfortable we're all like that to some extent, that's why we're here. So to, in, to increase that, this is in our interest. So as a young man, I felt like that. I, that's why I had to look, I had to pursue something out of the ordinary. I had to look instead of out, to look within. So we want to look within, we want to look for a spiritual life, and we want to look how high we can go then, how deep. If we're going to change our focus from outward to inward, well, there's a big world there then. So. When you hear about Krishna Leela, and you think, you hear he doesn't sleep, it's just cute in one sense, then you draw some meaning from that. It means that the kind of devotion that causes this face of God to make his appearance is very intense. And it's a haituki, a pratihata. It won't stop at anything. It's driven. It won't stop at anything. It's not tempered by or limited by... uh, curtailed by, edited by, but any separate interest. It's exclusive, and it won't stop at anything. And this is the sadhya that corresponds with that. So, very special ideal. Nishinga Bhagavan, coming from Narayana, so this is a particular manifestation of that Godhead, wherein there is some, there's less interest. There's no personal selfish interest, but well, there's a lesser degree of interest in what you're about. Like I said, what I can do for you, rather what you can do for me. They don't really want anything from Narayan, but it just doesn't dawn on them, something like that, that what he's about in, in all respects. So you want to go to sleep, go to sleep. Like I said, take rest. So they were there, they were protecting the desire of, as expressed by Narayan, to sleep. And Lakshmi, the wife of Narayan, came. I want to see my husband. No, he's sleeping. <laughs> She says, she's thinking, who do you think you are? I'm his wife, Lakshmi. I'm his primary shakti. I'm his wife. And you're telling me I can't go. So she doesn't say it. This is a certain etiquette there and so forth. Okay. But she's harboring that now. So these guys. So she can't make a scene there. Because the nature of this particular plane is such that Narayan is God. Lakshmi's his wife. She's beautiful, charming, and wonderful in all respects. But Narayan is God. He cannot be henpecked. This would cause a huge disturbance in Bhagavatam. Hmm? <laughs> Krishna can be henpecked. That is the beauty of 
Vrindavan. Jaya Radhe, Jaya Radhe. Where he's conquered by love. His whole existence is such. His whole persona is. That's what it's about. Conquered by love. Therefore he's simple. Not majestic in appearance and so forth. Conquered by love. Made human. Made like us. To come close to us. So Narayan in Vaikuntha is some distance. So Lakshmi keeps it within. But then in private quarters she makes her complaint. These two guys, Jai Vijay, your gatekeepers, they kept me out. Oh, well, you know, they're very devoted. What can I say? Please, Lakshmi Devi, don't take, don't take offense. They're very, they're devoted. I told them I wanted to sleep. And, but she wants that some rectification. She wants those guys should be chastised. They should be told. When I say sleep, that doesn't mean don't let my wife in. Hmm? Something like that. But at the same time, they were right for what they did. It's a complicated affair. Like our affairs, so is the love life of God. The guards were right, what they did. They, were, they had their devotion to Narayan, and he gave order, and they're following the order, regardless. He's their Lord, he's their master. So, it's a problem. She wanted them to be reprimanded. They didn't really do anything wrong, but he had to appease her also. Meanwhile, the whole of Vaikuntha couldn't know that he was also now motivated by the need to appease Lakshmi, or Vaikuntha would, the whole place would be up for grabs. <laughs> Ryan is, you know, subordinate, you know, <laughs> he's not the supreme. So, meanwhile, there were these sages, four of them, the Kumaras. Kumar, he said they have a name, Kumar, means young, youth, childlike. And so, why do they have a name, childlike? Because... They're pure and innocent, so they're depicted as being childlike. You want to give it a form that people in the world of names and forms can relate to, so they're depicted as childlike and naked. Naked means what? It means, well, it means that they don't have any uh, lust. And uh, if a child is naked, nobody's got a problem with that. If a grown man is naked in the market, it's a problem. Hmm? Because, you know, with a grown man or a grown woman, you know, if they're naked, they've, well, they've got a problem in the city. And you've got to keep, you know, keep it together, buddy. <laughs> you know, it's like everybody's got some, you know, sexual urge, but we've got to limit it and restrict it. And everybody agrees universally it has to be restricted on some level. People just draw the level in different places, that's all. But if a child is naked in the, in the, in the supermarket, you know, or in the mall, it's just cute, it's charming. We know he's not uh, on the prowl or something like that. <laughs> so they're depicted like this. This is the meaning. And that's the idea. When they're writing about this, this event, and they, and they try to give it a, a shape that we can relate to and make, make sense with and so forth from our frame of reference. So youthful, childlike, kumaras, pure. And they would meditate. They were meditators. And they, they were free to go anywhere. Like a child can go anywhere, okay? No, no, he's going to restrict it for the most part. So they could go anywhere. And they would meditate. And sometimes Vishnu would appear in their heart. Meditation. And so they had some desire to meet Vishnu face to face, outside of the heart. Some desire. So now, so Vishnu see, knows all the desires that everybody's dealing with. So he's got the desires of Lakshmi. He's got the desires of the gatekeepers and their situation. Now he's got these sages also. So he puts the whole kind of puts the whole thing together in a, in one package and resolves his principal issue, which again was to, was to fight 
to taste Vira Rasa, which has now been complicated by Lakshmi's desire and the, the situation of the gatekeepers and so forth. He brings the Kumaras into the picture, these boys. And by his omniscience, he brings them to Vaikuntha, to the gates of Vaikuntha. And they come through so many gates and they're stuck there at this gate. And Jai and Vijay, who are guarding the gates of Vaikuntha, they don't let them in. Can't enter here. You may go anywhere in the material world, but you can't enter here. And so these Kumaras, they're used to going anywhere because they're, they don't belong to anybody. They're not purchased by anybody. They have no bias. They can go anywhere. They're detached. This is the freedom that detachment affords us. If we become detached, we'll be likable, really. Because people know, well, he doesn't want to take anything. Come on over. <laughs> he has nothing, he doesn't want to take anything from me. Just whenever he comes, he just wants to give to me, something like that. So their giving is, is still limited at this point, but they're not takers. Mm-hmm. So they come to Vaikuntha and then they're restricted from going in. And they're not restricted anywhere else. They're Samadarshina in their Pandita. Vidya Vinaya Sampane Brahmane Gabihastini. Sunichayva Sapakecha Pandita. Samadarshina. Samadarshina means, this is from the Gita. Fifth chapter, equal vision. It says, Vidya Vinaya Sampane Brahmani Govi Hastini Suni Chaiva Swapake Cha. He sees a dog, a dog eater. We talked about that kind of a person, what that means the other day. Dog, dog eater, a cow, an elephant, a learned person. He sees them all the same. He sees them all equally. Samadarshina, Pandita. Samadarshina. Sounds interesting, maybe attractive. This is for jnanis. Samadarshina. Samadarshina is not for bhaktas. Prabhupada was once asked by a fellow in Indian house in Mayapur, and this man kind of challenged Prabhupada. He said, So, Prabhupada, uh, are, are, I want to know, are you Samadarshina? And he 